begin. Welcome to Mass Ave. We are here bringing you conservative news, policy, and insight from the steps of Capitol Hill. I'm your host, Emily Vanderbush. And I'm Tommy Binion. Welcome to our show today. We are talking about tax reform. It's been a big couple of weeks here at Heritage and in Washington talking about tax reform. That's right. We have been all tax reform all the time here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, A lot of big happenings here at Heritage uh, that are related to tax reform. A lot of high hopes here at Heritage uh, related to tax reform. Um, Another big week in that issue is is upon us. I'll say uh, even more eggs. All of the eggs are in the tax reform basket. um, And uh, bold predictions are being made by leaders like the president, Uh Speaker Ryan, not promising, but saying, you know, we hope to get this done by Christmas. Um, and that's a that's a pretty loud and clear signal that they think this is going to pass. They think they have momentum behind it. The House, for their part, will try to pass the Senate budget this week. If they do that, procedurally speaking, the table will be set uh, for tax reform to be considered under reconciliation. That's going to happen on Wednesday of this week. Um and all the leaders are going to continue uh, to to message correctly on tax reform, to uh, to talk to uh, their their members about tax reform. And then what we're going to have is a timeline after the budget passes is a timeline from the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Kevin Brady, on exactly how this is going to go. When are we going to see the final bill? When are we going to see a Ways and Means markup? When is it going to be on the floor? And hopefully, uh, we'll see that that all concludes by Christmas. And as the president said when he was here last week, uh, this will be a great Christmas present to the American people. Yes. As you said, the president was here uh, speaking at the Heritage Foundation's President's Club event last week. And the week before, we had uh, Speaker Paul Ryan also talking about tax reform. So we're going to try to incorporate some of those into today's episode so you can hear what they had to say, especially in regards to the specifics on um, what the president and Congress are trying to do on tax reform. Well, and you know, it, it's um, this is one of the most important projects of the year, uh, sure for Heritage, but definitely on the Hill for the Republican Party. Um, you know, th- this is as close to it gets as an absolute political imperative, but it's a policy imperative as well. Economic growth has been stifled for decades because of our tax code. Um, simplifying our tax code, cutting taxes for the middle class, cutting the corporate rate, which, by the way, is 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 paid, as Adam Michelle discussed here on the show, almost entirely by workers, if not entirely by workers. These are the things that this package does, this package accomplishes, that are going to unleash economic growth. Um, we're excited about it here at Heritage. Republican leaders like the president and the speaker, Chairman Brady, are excited about it. Uh, and so... Uh, that's why you've heard so much talk of tax reform uh, here on Mass Ave, and, and, and we're going to do it again today. And as they look to pass tax reform, what do you think are some of the lessons that Congress could learn from Obamacare and apply into trying to move this through by the deadline of Christmas? Yeah, I wrote a column on that in The Hill, actually. Right. Uh, lessons that we could learn from Obamacare uh, as we move into tax reform. Um the biggest problem with uh, with the Obamacare debate was the process was used against Obamacare repeal rather than for it. 
Um, I, I think Republican leaders got sort of cold feet about how bold they could be. They wanted to do replace at the same time as repeal. And that was a new feature of the debate in 2017. And you started hearing uh, no a lot. No, we can't do that on this bill. And the scapegoat was reconciliation. Uh, you know, oh, the Senate parliamentarian won't allow that. And I think the American people were sort of shocked by this, that, that there's some staffer who could who could stop the Republican majority from repealing Obamacare. And it, it was because of that tactic to, to blame the process, blame the rules surrounding the process and, and try to shrink what could be done. Here's what's happening on tax reform, and it's the opposite. They're looking for ways to open up space, to to put on the table more opportunities for tax reform. And so you saw that in the Senate budget. They actually reduced revenue in the Senate budget by $1.5 trillion for the express purpose of opening up the ability when we get to reconciliation to be able to cut taxes by that amount. So I, I, I think they're heeding that. Um, and, then, and then the other thing is what you can't have is – a deadline next Thursday, and a backroom meeting, and uh, and and the press and the people and the rank and file members are waiting with bated breath for you know the text to come out and and because tomorrow is the vote, uh, you just can't. That's not the way to generate a consensus. And what they've done this time is uh, they did all these listening sessions, all these meetings. They got all this input, and then they put together a framework. They, you know, that came out a month ago now. They solicited input on the framework, and, and they're filling in the details in a collaborative, uh, somewhat transparent way. And there'll be a committee markup. It'll be the regular order process. This is all going to be a lot better than the Obamacare repeal process. Hopefully, fingers crossed, I make no promises. All right. Well, here's to hoping. So what else is going on in D.C. and around the world that we should fill the listeners in on? Well, um, uh, in the Senate this week. So the House is going to be working on the budget resolution this week. In the Senate, they're going to be working on the disaster relief package that passed the House. It's $36.5 billion for you know Florida, Texas, Puerto Rico in disaster relief. Um, it also, um, I think very troublingly so, uh, waives $16 billion in debt that the National Flood Insurance Program, which is, an, which is not a viable government program, it, it just continues to rack up debt. And so we're waving our magic wand and uh, eliminating the 16, well, $16 billion of the much larger sum of debt the National Flood Insurance Program uh, has incurred. That's going to happen in the Senate. Uh, shockingly, um, $36.5 billion is, is not quite enough. Senators Cornyn and Nelson have decided to hold up the nomination of a very important appointee who used to work at Heritage Action, Russ Vogt. He's been nominated to be the deputy director of OMB. Um, these senators have decided to hold up that nomination until they get assurances that more disaster relief is coming this year. Uh, you know, this these nominations, uh, th- this is an interesting topic. Um, this president has had uh, an order of magnitude less nominations confirmed by the Senate in his first year than any other president uh, and it's it, it, it's stifling his agenda. Um, actually, this administration has been able to do uh, way more than you would expect with with uh, how few of their um, nominations have been confirmed by the Senate. For months, Republican leadership has blamed Democratic obstructionism. So, so let me tell you what happens. Democrats make them run the 30-hour clock that is required. Normally, that 30 hours would be waived. That's what we did for President Obama. But in this case, um, Democrats, even when they support the nominee, have made the Republicans wait the full 30 hours to confirm the nomination. 
So what that means is if you're only in session for four days a week, you only get three nominees confirmed a week. Well, the you know a lot of us have thought all that Majority Leader Mitch McConnell would have to do is, is keep the Senate in session Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. You'd get that many more nominations confirmed, but in turn, you'd put pressure on Democrats to stop this nonsense. That hasn't happened yet, and so blaming Democrats um, I, I don't think is fair because there are things Republicans could do to fix this. Now, that's starting to happen. Uh, Mitch McConnell said last week that he would do that more, although um, you know the announcement came last week that they, he would keep the Senate in Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at, uh, going forward, and then it didn't happen this past right. weekend. So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens on that. I, I think uh, within, um, w- within the grassroots, the conservative movement, the president has a lot more support than Senate Republicans, and so they're feeling that pressure to, to work with him to get his agenda enacted. Uh, and hopefully that's that's going to cause some of these great nominations he's made to be confirmed. Um, we'll see. There are some even Republicans holding President Trump's nominees. So uh, if you look under the hood in the Senate right now, it, it, it it's it's a little bit troubling. All right. Well, let's hope the, the Senate moves these nominees on through. All right. Well, uh, we are welcoming um, heritage policy analyst Adam Michelle. Uh, who is an expert in tax reform. He's a policy analyst at the Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies here at Heritage. Uh, Adam comes to us uh, doing similar work at Mercatus. But I got to say, uh, from from my personal vantage point, uh, nobody has followed this tax reform debate on Capitol Hill this past year more closely than Adam, and nobody knows the ins and outs of it like he does. Uh, and so we're extremely pleased to have him here on the show. Adam, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me on. So let's get started uh, just with a, with a really broad question here. Tax reform is being considered by the United States Congress. Tell us what that means. So it, it means that, that we're going to finally reform a system that hasn't been touched in essentially 30 years. That means that, that, that the economy can have this wet blanket taken off of it that is our current tax code, a, a a system that is holding back investment, is pushing businesses overseas, is making it harder for for average Americans to make a living. And so tax reform means that many of those problems will start to be corrected. And and that's why we should be excited about pushing this this process forward. So quickly, uh, in a nutshell, what does the plan do? So the unified framework that was released a couple weeks ago, it lowers tax rates for individuals uh, across the board simplifies the system by consolidating tax brackets, uh, lowering rates for, for, for people. And then on the business side, it makes America an attractive place to do business again, to, for businesses to invest, to hire Americans, to, to raise wages ultimately is what it all comes down to. And, and that's, by, that's through lowering the corporate tax rate. It's through lowering the pass-through rate for small, small and medium-sized businesses getting rid of all the special carve-outs and deductions in the tax code. And that's the, the biggest one of, or one of the biggest ones of those is on the individual side. And that's the state and local tax deduction, which I think we're going to talk about in a little bit more. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question. Looking specifically at state and local tax deductions, what's wrong with the way that we're doing it right now? So on the individual side of the tax code, we you can choose either a standard deduction or you can choose to itemize your taxes. And only about 30% of Americans currently itemize their, their, their taxes. And one of, these, one of these deductions you can choose if you itemize is the state and local tax deduction. So you're able to write off the taxes that you pay to state and local governments. 
And essentially what this does is it cross-subsidizes through the federal government high tax. Uh, it makes people in low tax states pay for the big government in high tax states. So states like California, Connecticut, Illinois, Maryland, New Jersey, New York are all subsidized by the Texases, the Alaskas, the North and South Dakotas. And, and that's just not fair. Uh, so you kind of already touched on this, but how are the low tax states being negatively impacted by this? Are they paying more in taxes? Yeah, kind of so, break it down. Yeah, so if we if we didn't have this the state and local tax deduction, then rates could be lower across the board okay. for everyone. Uh, on the sort of the you could lower rates up around eighteen percent uh, for some taxpayers, an average of seven percent, and. And that that's a benefit for everyone. So that's that's telling us right now that the current system is inefficient. But really, what what the problem is here is it it allows states like those like California to lo- to raise their taxes without any consequence. About every, if California raises their tax burden by one dollar, the federal taxpayers subsidize forty cents of that, and that's just cre- that's creating a perverse incentive that that the federal government shouldn't be in the business of of creating. Yeah, and so so clearly uh, eliminating this SALT deduction uh, is important from a policy standpoint. It will bring the tax code uh, into – it will be more fair. Um, it will be more equitable. Uh, but also eliminating the SALT deduction is a critical piece of this package. In other words, it uh, it, it's not really a workable uh, tax reform solution in, unless you have that in there because it, it, it's one of the things that, that allows – uh, us to raise some revenue under this uh, under this scheme. Uh, what are its chances of passing? Is it in jeopardy in the Congress? What's happening with that? Yeah. So right now in in the House, there's a discussion as to whether or not we should just limit this deduction rather than get rid of it completely. The Senate actually last week when they passed their budget, they they passed uh, an additional resolution that was part of this package, and they I don't it was more than fifty. 50 people in the Senate voted to basically saying, we like this idea of getting rid of the SALT deduction. So it has some support in the Senate. It has support in the House, but maybe not enough. We're really trying to get support there. But as you said, without eliminating this full deduction, we can't make all the other good things in tax reform go. This is a crucial piece of, of, the, full, of the full puzzle. I think Adam might be too nice to say that there are no Republicans from New York or California in the Senate, and so it it, it, it has no trouble in the Senate. In the House, there are a handful from California and New York, Republicans from those states, uh, and they're objecting to this at the moment. They're, they're, they're trying to make sure that uh, high-income folks who, who itemize their taxes in their state don't end up paying uh, more taxes, although... That would bring those people in, in, into parity with the rest of the country. So it, it's a it's it's not an argument yeah. they're necessarily making in public, but uh, it, it's really just a handful of objectors in the House. Um, but they could keep this thing from passing, and so they've got some leverage on this. Uh, what? How do you handicap this? It, I'm optimistic. I think that the the Senate is is the place where where often things sort of get held up so that because it's not such a problem there that's a really great sign and and then the when we actually start putting numbers on on paper though those folks in high tax states still shouldn't have a whole lot to object to if we're lowering rates across the board if we're doing the rest of these reforms everyone should come out ahead and at the end of the day it's removing a subsidy for large bureaucracies in these states so any any conservative should be 
for eliminating a subsidy to growing of state and local governments beyond their means. So when Speaker Paul Ryan was here about a week and a half ago, he made the point to go through and address some of the common misconceptions about tax reform one by one. What are some of the misconceptions you see and why is it important to correct those? Yeah, so there's a whole whole lot, lots right. of misconceptions around tax reform generally, but the, I think the biggest ones are that it's not going to help sort of the average American. And there's and it but it does and it helps helps average people in two really significant ways. One on the individual side, just cutting of taxes for for low middle income middle class Americans that were double. The, they're talking about doubling the standard deduction, which is a benefit across the board, and and then they're also talking about lowering rates. So we're both getting relief from the bottom up and the the top down, and and so that's that's more money in people's pockets. And then there's this economic growth piece, and that's if we can. We can lower the corporate tax rate from the currently the highest rate in the developed world of almost 40% when you add in state rates down to the 20% that they're talking about and lower the pass-through, the small business rate. This is a way that that businesses can start creating jobs and hiring more Americans, and that ultimately turns into higher wages. The, a lot of the economic literature shows that at the end of this process, Americans could see paychecks four thousand or nine thousand dollars larger on the optimistic end, and that's that's a lot of money in someone's pocket. And that was a that was a great talk from the from the uh, speaker here at Heritage, but uh, e- even greater uh, mm-hmm. what what was the president uh, speaking to? Um, the Heritage Foundation last Tuesday night. And after that event, I, I saw you in the cab line and you were on your way to the TV studios to start what I think was a whirlwind of media interviews, getting your reaction to the president's speech uh, to Heritage. What was your reaction? It was, as you said, it was great to have the, the president speak speak to our members and and, uh, and and join us for the evening. And his his talk was everything we we, we wanted to hear. He hit on on, on the main pieces of tax reform, he he highlighted that four thousand dollar number I just mentioned about how tax reform can can mean a wage increase for for every American and and that and that that comes from these business tax reforms making America a place that businesses want to come to rather than a place that businesses are leaving. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, you know, I, I think this president is a great orator. He's a great spokesman um, to the to the group that this this. You know, to the group of American people that this tax reform plan is really going to benefit, uh, it's the forgotten man. Uh, that you know, he he spoke about the forgotten man several times uh, in his inauguration address and since, uh, and that's really that's who this tax reform plan is aimed at. Washington for too long has been choosing winners and losers. This tax plan does away with that practice, and so now the losers become uh, big winners under this plan. But really, all we're doing is leveling the playing field. Uh, I, I I think it was a really powerful speech. Um, anything else you want to add about about tax reform? We're in the thick of it. We are. We're we're we just got one of the sort of biggest boosts towards tax reform as the the Senate passed their budget. It's now at the House. So. That's that's how tax reform is going to move through this process. The the budget will carry tax reform ultimately to the president's desk. So keeping an eye on on what the House does next, and then and then really digging our teeth into the specifics of the legislative text when it comes out is what we're keeping our eye on. All right. Well, Adam, I'm sure we'll be hearing from you again as this process goes on. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. And here joining us for our Ask the Expert segment, we have Ginny Multivano. Jenny, over to you. Thanks, Emily. Uh, excited to be here for Ask the Expert today. 
We're going to do it in studio. Uh, Tommy, our great co-host, is going to wear two hats. He's going to be our expert today because, besides being our co-host, he's also Director of Congressional and Executive Branch Relations. And Tommy, we got an interesting question from a listener that I think is very applicable to what we've been seeing with health care and tax reform and President Trump's remarks at President's Club. The question is, why have the promises made by the Republican Party leadership, the establishment, not been honored and complied with? We had time frames and they have gone and we have nothing yet. You know, it seems a little bit better with tax reform, but with health care especially, it does seem like a lot of the blame does rest with leadership. And President Trump himself at President's Club said, I've been waiting seven years. And he was kind of referencing he thought that leadership would have something ready to roll. Yeah. So um, I'm I'm. Uh, very uncomfortable being referred to as an expert. I, I, I think uh, more <laughs> aptly described, I spend what I do for a living is I bang my head against the wall that is the United States Congress. Uh, it is a very frustrating um, institution. Uh, and so I share the frustration of the listener who asked this question. Promises were made and not kept. Um, and I often write about that. I often talk about that. Um Expectations were extremely high, but uh, I, I think moreover, um, the policy imperative. The, the, you know, we're trying to save our country here. Uh, it, you know, um, what was at stake was so big that the the broken promises are even more disappointing. Uh, let me go back to the start though and give a note of optimism. This Congress has done some good things, um, putting Justice Neil Gorsuch on the court. Nominating him on President Trump's end and confirming him in the Senate, that is a generational win. Filling Justice Scalia's seat with a constitutional conservative, the impact of that cannot be overstated. It's extremely important um, for this generation and the next uh, that the Constitution be respected by the Supreme Court. And that starts with um, confirming a constitutionalist judge. It was not always guaranteed, right? Mm-hmm. We, we can never say that enough. Right. Um, Additionally, the uh, the Congress uh, did something really, really novel. They took the Congressional Review Act, which had been used, I think, one time before, uh, and they used it to dismantle President Obama's regulatory uh, legacy. All, not all, but but 14 of the major regs that he did in, uh, in his last year as president were completely undone by 14 bills the House and Senate passed and the president signed. Um, that's that's not everything, but that's a legacy of at least reversing some of the burden that the Obama administration put on people and the economy. Uh, and so now to to the to the disappointments, um, Obamacare repeal. Uh, we we were promised Obamacare repeal. We came to expect Obamacare repeal. Uh, the House and Senate processed Obamacare repeal countless times uh, in the years that followed them being in power in the White House and the Senate. Uh, and, the, and the House, and uh, when the rubber met the road, they couldn't pull it off. Um, my, t- my instinct is to blame the three Republicans in the Senate who voted no on that, uh, but that, that, that's not the only group that shared the blame, although they share some of it because uh, two of them even voted for um, a 2015 Obamacare repeal bill that actually went all the way to the president's desk. Uh, but it was a flawed strategy from the beginning. The, the mandate was at its peak uh, at the beginning of this year, and uh, and they had done they had processed the repeal bill uh, only a year prior, and all the momentum was there. And what happened was they decided to pivot and change tracks and try to get repeal and replace done. Um, I'm not making excuses for them. I, mm-hmm. 
and we ought to be as uh, as um, conservatives uh, insisting that they go back to working on health care repeal. And we are. The Heritage Foundation is insisting that they go back to it. After all, uh, liberals are lining up behind Bernie Sanders' single payer uh, bill. So we've got big problems in the health care space. Um, the the president expressed a similar frustration in his in his remarks at President's Club that this um, that this haven't you know that, that these major promises haven't been kept um, and so I I think the Republican Party knows they have a problem I think that's why they've put so much stock in tax reform but it doesn't excuse what has happened on Obamacare repeal and we're hoping they go back to it um, and I think as a political matter uh, they should go back to it and I think that they see that as well. I think they need to. Well, Tommy, thank you for chiming in and giving your insight. It's always fantastic, and we always appreciate questions from our listeners. Thanks for listening in. That's it for our show today. Remember to subscribe to Mass Ab on iTunes so you never miss what's happening on the Hill and around the world. Check us out on Facebook at Mass Ab Podcast, and remember to follow the Heritage Foundation to keep up with the latest conservative news, policy, and insight from the steps of Capitol Hill.